we don't know the time, and we know He's coming back. With those two thoughts in mind, folks, number one, you need to make sure that you're ready, that you've trusted Christ as your Savior. You do not want to go through what's going to be happening when He returns and following after that. You do not want to go through that. Make sure that you've trusted Him as your Savior. You know that you're saved and on your way to heaven. And the second thing is, if you know that you're saved and on your way to heaven, make sure that you're ready. All right? I know that's the same statement for both, but the truth is we need to be diligent. We need to be working when He comes back so that we're not ashamed. We need to be doing the work that He's called us to do. And uh, so pray that the Lord will help find us uh, living without spot, blameless, and diligent doing the work that He's called us to do. And uh, I want to just encourage you. All of that is in the Wednesday night message from last week. And I would encourage you, if you were not able to be here or to hear that, uh, it's not because I, I came up with it. Uh, sometimes people say, Pastor, that was a good message. And I usually answer, well, I'll let the Lord know it was His. So uh, His Word is what tells us these things. It's not my opinion. It's not my thoughts. It's what His, his book has told us. And so I would encourage you, please, 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 if you're anxious, if you're concerned, or you know someone who is, uh, take a moment to uh, listen to that and to see what the Bible has to say. It's very, very clear. And uh, I hope that will be a help to you. Let's take our Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to use a text and preach some of, some of a message, but I've added some things to it that I've preached I think one other time here, uh, possibly two other times. I've been here now almost a little over five years, and it might be something that I've preached twice. It's one of those messages that uh, from time to time I try to preach because it is so vitally important. And um, by way of remembrance, I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more my brain leaks and I forget things. And uh, sometimes I need to be reminded of them. And uh, so I took some of the notes and added some things to it. And uh, hopefully (coughs) it'll be something that today will be a timely message. (coughs) Something that certainly ought to be something that will help and edify us and encourage us in some things. 1 Thessalonians chapter number 5. And we're going to read just one verse of Scripture, verse number 25. And the Apostle Paul writes this, Brethren... Pray for us. Brethren, pray for us. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, once again, we ask for the next few moments, may you take apart any distractions, anything that would cause our minds to wander. And Father, could we, could we have a unique working of your Holy Spirit upon our hearts this morning and to bring the truth of this passage and the passages that we'll be looking at to light. May we understand the truth of them and the importance of them, the urgency of them. So, Father, we ask that you will help us in these areas. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to deal with the topic of prayer. We studied in Psalm 5 this morning a little bit about the prayer that David prayed and uh, trying to uh, stay with one topic and one thing that we can build on throughout the day. Uh, A number of months ago, uh, I was concerned about eight or nine months ago, I was concerned on Sunday mornings, having three services back-to-back-to-back, it seemed like, um, having three separate subjects. And usually by the time we got to the afternoon service, most people had forgotten what we studied in Sunday school because there were three different topics. 
And so I don't always do this, but I attempt sometimes, quite, quite often on Sundays, to have kind of a theme running through the day that we build on. We lay a foundation in Sunday school. Then we begin to build on uh, exhorting and encouraging and uh, showing the what uh, we ought to be doing and why we ought to be doing it in the 11 o'clock hour. And then oftentimes in the afternoon is a more practical and uh, more of a here's how you do it uh, from God's Word. And I don't always get to, to keep the same theme all the way through. Uh, sometimes the Lord uh, directs a different way for the message uh, in the 11 o'clock hour. But uh, today is one of those days that it seems like the Lord will work it out for us to study this idea of prayer throughout the day. And uh, I hope that you'll stay with us all the way through the afternoon service. <coughs> it's interesting that oftentimes the most... Uh, powerful thing, the most, uh, the thing that is most um, given to us in Scripture for us to thrive upon in the Christian life is the one that is most neglected. It's the one that we least do and practice. In fact, out of all the things that the disciples asked the Lord to teach them, it was the subject of prayer. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And, of course, the Lord taught them a pattern of praying. And, by the way, I know that there are many times people recite the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but can I tell you this? His prayer that He gave to the disciples was not one that He gave for them to recite. It was something to teach them how to do the praying. And it was a pattern to be given to them. And you say, well, Pastor, is it wrong to recite the Lord's Prayer? No, not any more than it's wrong to quote any other portion of Scripture. But it ought to be something that when it comes to this matter of praying, that we learn to pray from the heart. Uh, in Sunday school this morning, we were dealing with the idea of David asking for the Lord to uh, hear his prayer and to consider his meditation. He said, there's two things I want you to do. He says, first of all, I want you to hear it. Secondly, I want you to consider it. And uh, oftentimes, <clears throat> we uh, are kind of anemic in our praying. A number of years ago, uh, it's been probably about 18, 20 years ago, I was teaching a series on praying in our church down in Florida. And uh, had prepared it. I had four or five messages on praying, prayer and uh, the, the things of, about it. And uh, as I was in the middle of preaching one of them, uh, I began to get under conviction. And a lot of times, and you need to understand this, a lot of times when a preacher is preaching, uh, he's preaching as much to himself as he is to anybody. Um, and and there were, I was in the middle of this message, and I'm making points from Scripture that, to be real frank with you, were, were convicting my heart regarding my prayer life. And I thought, Lord, how... How, how shallow it seems to be. Uh, I, I do pray. I have a regular time of prayer and, and, and I spend time with you, but it seems like it just, it, it's, it's kind of a routine. It's, there's no specialness to it. There's no, there's no spirit involved in it. And uh, I, I was talking uh, this morning in Sunday school and sharing this, that there is the possibility of sometimes saying words and really not praying at all. And then there are other times that our hearts are crying out to God, and with no words at all, it seems that we're praying. And I will say this, I'm all for public prayer. I love public prayer. I don't believe there's anything wrong with saying, uh, let's get together and have a prayer meeting. In fact, in the book of Acts, we find that there were at least 120 in the upper room praying and uh, seeking for God to come and bring the Holy, or to have the Holy Spirit come uh, during that time, and they were praying for the time of Pentecost coming up. And uh, they had a, public, a time of coming together in prayer. But can I tell you this, that our public praying will never be what it should until our private time with the Lord in prayer is what it should be. Uh, the most important part of praying is learning how to commune with God in your own hearts. 
one of the fellows that I was reading about that had commented on Psalm 5 made this statement regarding prayer, and I'm going to read it to you. I read it this morning in Sunday school, but I think it's very important. He said, There may be prevailing intercession where there are no words. And alas, there may be words where there is no true supplication. Let us cultivate the spirit of prayer, which is even better than the habit of prayer. Now, you understand what he's saying here? That more important than the habit of praying is cultivating this idea of having a spirit of prayer. He says this, there may be seeming prayer where there is little devotion. We should begin to pray before we kneel down, and we should not cease when we rise up. And I would encourage us in this thing of praying. We're living in some times where we need some of God's people to get a hold of God in prayer. And to not just pray without uh, faith, without expectation, but that we pray expecting God to bring an answer. There were times that there were great, great revivals in history. Times where God's Holy Spirit began to move on the hearts of men in miraculous ways. And as you read and study some of those accounts, in fact, I don't know that there's ever any account that you can read that did not begin with a, with a re- revival in the hearts of God's people in this matter of praying. The, the final words as Paul finishes this letter to the church at Thessalonica, and he's giving his, his last thoughts, his last uh, things that he wants to let them know about this particular thing. And he says in verse number 22, he says, Abstain from all appearance of evil, and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. And then he says this, Brethren, pray for us. As he finishes up the last things that he's telling this church, the important stuff, the things he's trying to say last minute. I'm uh, Lord willing, after the afternoon service this afternoon, uh, my son and I will be getting in the truck and heading down uh, to see my daughter in uh, Panama City for a day or two. And then we'll be back uh, on Wednesday but I remember calling my daughter last night that lives up here, Reagan, and I said, hey, I need you to come over, and I need you to, in the next few days, make sure you take the dog out and give him food and water, spend some time with him each day. And I'm going through a whole list of things that are very, very important because the, the last words I'm telling her before I leave on this trip are of vital importance. And the Apostle Paul is getting to the end of this letter and he's speaking things that he wants to exhort them in and, and to try to encourage them in and that are very important uh, things of his life. And one of the great things that he brings out of importance, he says, brethren, pray for us. A.J. Gordon said this, and I've used this statement many, many times, and I love this statement. It's one of the things that has really changed a lot of things in my life with regards to praying. He says, you can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you can never do more than pray until you have prayed. I'm going to say that one more time. I want you to think about it. You can do more than pray after you have prayed. But you can never do more than pray until you have prayed. Have you ever said this to someone? Don't raise your hand. But have you ever said this to someone? I know I have in the past. When someone's going through a trial or a burden, I say, brother or sister, whoever it is, I'm praying for you. And then I followed up with this. I wish I could do... You did it too, didn't you? Can I tell you, the greatest 
thing that we can do for someone is pray for them. And why is it that we feel like there's so many other important things that we can do? And then as a last resort, we can pray for them. Can I tell you this? The greatest thing. You know, one of the, the most special statements that someone can make to you that ought to stir your hearts and ought to, ought to thrill your soul is, I'm praying for you. I don't know how many times someone has texted or, or told me, Pastor, I'm praying for you. Or sometimes I'll call them on the phone and they'll say, I just got done praying for you. Can I tell you this? That means more than anything I could ever imagine in this world. Because prayer is the thing that moves God to action. We don't order God around. We don't demand Him around. We don't come to God because of our worth or our merit and expect Him to do something because of what we've done for Him. But as we learned in Psalm 5 today, we come to Him because of the multitude of His mercies. Because where there has been multitude of sin, He has given multitude of mercy. And I come to Him on that behalf because He's allowed me and given me the opportunity, the privilege to come to Him in prayer. In Hebrews chapter number 4, it tells us that we're to come boldly to the throne of grace, that we can find help in time of need. Oh, what that we would learn to come boldly to the throne of grace. E.M. Bounds, who wrote a great, great series of books on prayer, he made this statement. He said, the little estimate that we put on prayer is evidenced by the little time that we give it. Well, there's a lot of truthfulness in that statement. If it was important to us, if it was the thing that we looked at and we said this is what moves the hand of God, this is what causes the power of God to be stirred on our behalf, then we would pray a lot more often than we do. We would pray a lot more fervent than we do. And we would not have a time of prayer, but we would have a spirit of prayer. Thomas Hooker, a Puritan years ago, made this statement. He said, prayer is my chief work. It is by means of it that I carry on the rest. It is my chief work. It is by means of it that I carry on the rest. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, I would rather teach one man to pray than ten men to preach. Why? Because prayer is a powerful thing. Prayer is that which causes the hand of God to move upon our behalf. I hope we understand this today that God knows what we're going to be praying about before we pray. Have you ever noticed that? God knows it. He knows our hearts. He knows the burden. And yet He has commanded us, He has told us, and He's given us the wonderful privilege to come to Him in prayer, to lay our needs before Him. He's called us to pray, not for His behalf or not because of His benefit, but for ours. For us to be able to put our faith and our trust in Him more. To say, Lord, I'm depending solely upon You. Hold your place here for a minute. And I just want to show you a couple of verses from Psalm 5 in this morning's lesson. I just want you to see a couple of things here. We're going to be back in First Thessalonians in just a moment. But I want you to look in Psalm 5 for a moment. As the psalmist begins in verse 1, he says, Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning. 
And I want you to notice this phrase. He says, O Lord, in the morning I will direct, will I direct my prayer unto thee. And then I want you to notice this phrase. If you're in the habit of underlining it, I would encourage you to underline this. And we'll look up. And we'll look up. How often we come to the Lord in prayer and we throw the prayer out there almost like a fishing pole, hoping we catch a fish on the end of it. We throw it out there and say, well, I probably won't get an answer to this, but I'm going to do it just in case. The psalmist said, I'm going to direct my prayer to you. I'm going to lay it out. I'm going to make sure that you understand the need of my heart. He said, then I'm going to look up. I'm going to be watching for the answer. I'm going to be expectant of you to do something as regard to my, in regard to my prayer. Oh, that we would learn to cry out to God. That we would learn to have expectation in prayer. The Bible tells us in the book of James, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. If we're praying and there's not a whole lot being availed, then our prayer is neither effectual nor fervent. Because if it were effectual and fervent, God has given us a promise. That if it's effectual and it's fervent, that it will avail much. A number of years ago, there's a great evangelist. His name was Charles Finney. Charles Finney, when he graduated from seminary, he went into itinerant preaching. He went around trying to have revival meetings in churches and places. And for the first three or four months, he was uh, really, really, he was just kind of uh, powerless. There was no, in fact, some of the men that came and listened to him preach, they they came in and said, "Boy, there's just there's just seems to be no substance there." And many of them gave discouragement to Brother Finney as he began his his ministry. There was a Congregationalist pastor who, many years before, several years before, had. Uh, contracted a, a, a bad infection in his eyes. His name was Daniel Nash. And uh, the eye infection was so bad that they had to put him in a room, a darkened room, for several months. They would have to open the door and pass food through him. He'd have to wear a dark veil over his face because he couldn't stand the, the light sensitivity to his eyes. He says by his own account that it was during those times in those darkened rooms alone with no light that he began to have his prayer life revolutionized. And he learned what it was to pray. When he came out of that, he had heard of a young man who was traveling and doing evangelistic work by the name of Charles Finney. And he went to Brother Finney. He said, Brother Finney, he said, if you'll give me your, uh, your itinerary of when you're going to be at different places, he said, I would like to go ahead of that and pray and spend time in prayer. And oftentimes, three or four days, maybe a week before the time of the meeting, Daniel Nash would go into the town where Brother Finney was going to have that revival. He would rent a room, oftentimes just a cellar in the basement or a spare room that someone had in town. And he would give himself to prayer. So much so, when Brother Finney came to town one time, there was a lady who said, "Uh, Do you know Daniel Nash and a young man that's with him by the name of Abel Clary? Brother Finney said, yes, I do. She said, I'm worried about them. They've been locked in their room for three days with no food. And every time I open the door, they're laying on their faces on the floor praying and crying out to God. And she says, they do this all hours of the day. 
Brother Finney began to have great results of God's power falling in his revival meetings. A number of people have tried to go back and find some of the great men who were used of the Lord like D.L. Moody and uh, George Whitfield and some of these fellows that uh, were certainly used by God. Sam Jones and some of these great revivalists who would come into a town and, and literally the whole town would be shaken. Bar rooms would close. Uh, the, the, uh, uh, the, the houses of ill repute would close down and the towns would turn to the Lord. Many people would get saved and they would usually establish a church or revitalize an existing church that was there. A lot of people have gone and they've tried to trace the lineage of these churches and see how well they have lasted over the years. The most that one of them had ever found was, I believe, D.L. Moody's revival work where they found that about 20% of the churches that were founded during D.L. Moody's revival work were actually staying true to the Word of God and had lasted in their existence until they found the churches that Charles Finney started all up and down through the East Coast here of the United States. They found that over 80% of the churches that were founded through the revival meetings of Charles Finney that remained true to the Word of God, were doctrinally sound, and were continuing and even thriving today. For seven years, Daniel Nash would give himself in prayer. He would labor. He would agonize in prayer. They went into town one day, and a lady came to Brother Finney and said, Do you know a man by the name of... Daniel Nash, he said, as usual, he said, yes, ma'am, I do. She said, I'm very worried. She said, I hear these noises. He's been there for three days locked in this room. And I hear these groanings and these, these crying outs to God. He said, she said, I'm worried because from the time the sun comes up in the morning till late into the evening hours, I hear him. She said, I really wish you'd come check on him. And he said, you let him alone. For he is battling in prayer. He oftentimes would never go into the meetings until maybe a few nights into them. And he would leave his room from praying only long enough to walk into the meeting. And he would come in for a few moments. And it was known for him to stand there for a few moments and say, he's not here. And then he would go back to his prayer closet and he would begin praying again. And usually after two or three or four nights of this, he would come in and one night he would say, he's here. And Charles Finney in his biography said this. He said, I never knew him to be mistaken, for on that very night the windows of heaven would open. The power of God would fall upon that service. In Rochester, New York, they went for a meeting that was supposed to last only about ten days. The meeting continued because of the success of it for over four weeks. And during those four weeks, over 100,000 people trusted Christ as their Savior. For seven years, Brother Finney, who had started off as an unremarkable, itinerant man who really preached with no power at all, God used in a mighty way. After seven years, Daniel Nash passed away. And Charles Finney continued in revival meetings for about three months longer and finally took a church and a pastorate in Oberlin and he said, the, the revivals are over. Can I tell you this? There is no substitute for a man or a woman who knows how to pray fervently and effectually. 
Folks, we're living in some dark days. We're living in some days that there are so many who need to know the gospel. There are so many that need to come to Christ. And we oftentimes flounder in our labors, in our, our efforts, in our work, because we're doing it and attempting it in our own power, in our own might. Oh, that we would learn to bathe our work and our labor in prayer. There are several things I believe that we could learn about this subject of praying. And I want us to look at a few of them today. First of all, turn with me to the book of James, chapter number 5. We quoted it earlier, but I want you to see what the Bible says about it. James, chapter number 5, just back a few pages from 1 Thessalonians. James, chapter number 5. In James chapter number 5, verse number 16, James makes a pattern of things that I believe will cause God's power in prayer to, to come about. He says, confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Can I tell you this? There needs to be a righteousness about your soul. There needs to be a time where we spend... Uh, with God saying, Lord, if there's anything between me and you, if there's something that is quenching or grieving your Holy Spirit, may I get it right. Show it to me. Help me to get that right. <clears throat> the fact that we're to confess our faults one to another and pray for one another. And he says this, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. so important that we learn that prayer is not just something to be handled carelessly or casually. It's not something that we should handle flippantly. But it's something of vital importance. I wonder what God could do today. Let me rephrase that. God can do all He wants to do. I wonder what God would do today if God's people would learn to pray effectually and fervently with clean hands and a pure heart, crying out to God, pleading for God to move, to hearken unto my voice, to hear my cry, to consider the meditation of my heart. Oh, Lord, may we learn to pray. Psalm tw or Romans chapter 12. <clears throat> Romans chapter 12. There's a whole list of things in chapter 12 that Paul is exhorting the Christians in Rome to do. He tells them, in verse number 9, he says, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. Boy, that would be a great one for us to get a hold of, wouldn't it? Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love and honor, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation. And then I want you to see this. Continuing instant in prayer. 
continuing instant in prayer. There are three forms of praying that I believe the Bible teaches us about. One of them is one that is a spoken prayer. It's by our words. The other is a meditation of our heart. We would call it silent prayer. I'm thankful we have a God who knows the very thoughts and intents of our heart. There's nothing in our hearts that can be hid from Him. The psalmist, he made it so clear as he said, If I were to ascend to the heavens, thou art there. He said, If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. He said, If I go into the uttermost parts of the earth, behold, thou art there. Can I tell you this? God sees the very thoughts and intents of the heart. And while we may spend a time with the Lord in prayer, may we learn to be in a spirit of prayer. May there be a time where we say, Lord, I want to be instant in prayer. At any moment, I want to be in thoughtful prayer. Whether it be with words or with the meditation of my heart, the third form, I believe, is a form of crying out to God. Sometimes in our crying out to God, it's, with such an emotion and such a, uh, such a weight of burden upon us that words fail us. The heart just begins to cry out to Him. I'm thankful that we have the Holy Spirit that prays along with us. And when we cannot pray the way that we should, He helps us to get those prayers in the way that they should be to the Father. He prays along with us. Oh, what a joy it is to have a God who's so concerned about us pouring our hearts and our burdens and casting them upon Him. He's so concerned that we have the type of faith that we can come to God and God alone. In Psalm 5, when David was crying out to God, he said, O Lord, in the morning will I direct my prayer unto Thee, and we'll look up. He said, I'm not going to go anywhere else. He said, there's only one place I can go, and that is to the Lord. In the morning, I'm going to come to Thee. I'm going to direct my prayer to Thee. Oh, that we would learn that the answers to our problems and the problems of this world are not going to be found in our solutions. They're not going to be found in our legislation. They're not going to be found in our human moral standards. They're not going to be found in the acceptance of society. They're going to be found in the truthfulness of God's Word. They're going to be found in crying out to God and saying, God, there is no hope but in You. We be instant in prayer. I've used this phrase a few times before, but I heard somebody or read somebody that had written this, and they said, oh, that we would make prayer the steering wheel rather than the spare tire. That it would be such that it directs our life rather than the last resort that we do when we find ourselves in trouble. Look with me in Acts chapter 6 for a moment. We need to have effectual prayer. We need to have fervent prayer. We need to be instant in prayer. And then in Acts chapter number 6 and verse number 4, we're going to begin in verse 3 for a moment. And it's speaking here of the disciples, the twelve apostles. He says, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out, among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, who we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves, notice this, continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. 
Can I tell you this? That we ought to seek to be continuous, continuous in prayer. That if there are things that are distracting, things that are causing us not to be able to pray as we ought, that we would find ways to have those things dealt with so we, we give ourselves continually in prayer and in the ministry of the Word. There's a lot of times in our Christian life that we seem to put God on a shelf, don't we? I heard one fellow say it this way. It's, we treat Him as if He's an Aladdin's lamp, God. We put Him on the shelf until we get to a big enough problem that we go and take Him off and rub the lamp and have Him come and grant our wish. Folks, there's no way to treat God. There's no way for a Christian to have a communion with God, to have time with God, to walk with God in prayer, to be instant in prayer, to be continuous in prayer, to have an effectual prayer life, to have a fervent prayer life. And then I want you to notice lastly in 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. Second Corinthians chapter number 1, in verse number 11, the Apostle Paul says, Ye also, and I want you to notice this phrase, helping together by what? Prayer for us. Prayer for us. When the Apostle Paul ended his letter to the Thessalonians, He said, brethren, pray for us. Do you know that in praying one for another, we are able to help in another's ministry? He tells them at Corinth in verse number 11, he says, and ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given by many on our behalf. One of the greatest things you can tell somebody is, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. I wonder what God could do with a group of God's people who would say, Lord, teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. I remember that that service... So many years ago, as I was preaching on those messages on prayer, and I, in the middle of the service, remembered the prayer time that we had had shortly before the meeting, and some requests were made, and we had a a person that we were praying for that had terminal cancer. And the thing that came to my mind as I was preaching, I thought, Lord, how did I pray for that person? I remembered as I spent some time in, in the prayer meeting saying, Lord, bless this person and be with, that was my, my go-to phrase, be with so-and-so, bless so-and-so. But I thought, boy, if I had cancer, I would, I would surely want somebody to say something more to God on my behalf than just be with Him. 
I would want somebody who is effectually and fervent in their prayer, pouring their heart out to God and pleading with God, Lord, would you do a work in healing them? And if you choose not to heal them, then would you give them the grace and the comfort to endure and to be faithful to the end? Oh, that we would learn to pray. We tend to get our our little comfortable prayer that we're used to. And even in our time alone, maybe we say the same things. And I'm not saying you ought not have some prayer list that you go through. I believe that's an important thing. But what are we really praying for as we pray? Is there a heart that is pouring out to God and crying out to Him? Because far more than our words, I believe there ought to be a meditation of our heart and a crying out of our soul to God. Teach me to pray. Teach me to pray. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed. We certainly are living in some unusual times. You turn the news on every day and there's certainly concern. Our hearts go out with compassion and with sorrow.